because you're jumping back into the gut. All right. Hey, Coach. Welcome to the Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Oliver. I appreciate you joining us for this week's podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit basketballimmersion.com for more coaching resources and access to all the basketball podcasts. I hope you will give us a shout out on social media, on Twitter at Bball Immersion, or on Instagram at Basketball Immersion to help me continue to share the game. Enjoy the episode. Coaches, we are excited today to have Coach Fisdale with us. Coach uh, Fisdale was most recently the head coach for the New York Knicks. He previously served as the head coach for the Memphis Grizzlies and was, and was an assistant coach for the Atlanta Hawks, Golden State Warriors, and Miami Heat. And uh, Coach, I can't thank you enough. Thanks for taking the time and sharing the game with us. Oh, thanks for having me. I love doing this stuff. Well, and uh, we're going to love having you on. And uh, I'm going to start with something a little bit different, but one of my favorite existentialist philosophers, Kierkegaard, said, Life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. And what I take from that is, and I'm curious to get your take on this, is the value of reflection as a coach. Can you talk about that in terms of your experiences with reflection? Well, I'm a strong believer in self-reflection. I I, I try to instill it in my players. Um, It was really something that was instilled in me as as a young kid through my mother is that before, you know, I've always looked at things from this standpoint is before you start trying to figure out what everybody else did wrong, look at yourself first and spend time looking at the situation and saying, what could I have done better? And I really do that. I do it, I, I do it day to day, uh, practice to practice, game to game, season to season, job to job. And I really think it's a big part of growth, being able to face uh, and and really own uh, where you screwed up and, and how you can be better. And I, I think that's the only way that when that next opportunity comes, that you're really going to be prepared to seize the moment. Well, and I appreciate that. And, and, and you said screwed up and that's a part of it, but I imagine for you and for all of us, it should be a part of it is also what you succeeded with, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. You got, you can't just beat yourself into the ground. You definitely got to have your buckets of, okay, what's good and, and what do we have to drop kick out of here uh, and, and really try to stay at, you know, closer to the things that you're doing well, but, you know, at the same time, understand where you're messing up and, and what you can do better. And, and if there's changes that need to be made. Well, and we're going to probably get into this, but there's a myriad of factors in all coaching that some is controllable and some is less controllable. But maybe just with this reflective concept, what areas do you think you improve the most as a coach over the first head coaching experience to the second? Oh, man, that's such a tough question because I'm kind of (laughs) still in my process. You know, I'm still, you know, digesting my last opportunity and, uh, you know, I, I do think that I became more patient in my second opportunity than I did in my first. Um, you know, and I think that the, the first opportunity, I think I've said this before, is that um, that team was getting older and that team was going to eventually, they was going to have to start making some tough decisions on different guys that really helped the Memphis Grizzlies become uh, you know, a team to be reckoned with. And so when I got there, I was in like full speed ahead. Like we got to win now, <laughs> you know, like don't have time to, to do certain things. And, and, you know, it was good and bad. And I learned from both, but I was just one way in that moment. And, and when I got to New York, I understood that to get over the hump, um, with developing young guys and building a team from scratch uh, that it was going to take more patience than what I had put in Memphis. And so, uh, you know, that was probably the biggest thing that I took uh, from job to job. And it's got to be, it's, it's got to be extremely magnified, obviously at the NBA level, but that one of the, one of the quotes of reflection that I saw you say is you cannot rush culture, relationships, trust, and judgment. Can, can you talk about that? Because that's such a powerful statement to be able to say that in an environment where honestly, you kind of have to rush it because you have to win. Yeah. And it's, it's, 
it is what it is the truth is you can't put a push a fast forward button on uh, a relationship you can't you can't make someone trust you or like you or believe in you just because you walk in the door like that really takes time and when you start talking about 17 guys a coaching staff a front office a medical team uh, you know your owner like those relationships, if you really, you know, gonna try to build it out, that takes time. And uh, and you just can't, no matter how much you want to fast forward it and get, it's like making a young guy a better player. You know, you get an 18, 19 year old and you just want them to get it. And <laughs> that's not how it works. <laughs> they got to go through it. They got to take their lumps. You know, they got to take their punches and they get it over time. And, and you know, it's just, it really is important that you, when you're approaching those circumstances, that you understand that those things take, you know, real patience. Well, and one of the one of the stories from your experience in Memphis that I thought was a brilliant reflection of your ability to be able to communicate and, and get the why across was when you got Zach Randolph to come off the bench. And can you talk to us, maybe in general terms, if you don't want to share specific, just about dealing with ego and all these on um, pride and all these different things that we want successful players to have, but the challenges then in being able to communicate what you feel is best for them and for the team. Yeah. I mean, I felt like, and this is what's kind of worked for me throughout my career as an assistant and, you know, in my relationships as a head coach is, is one, you gotta be upfront and honest, uh, about you know why you're doing something but i do think it's important a lot of times to point out how it benefits everybody and not just in some vague way but give you know some real hard line reasons on why this is good for everybody and you know what i told zebo was you know i'm asking mike Conley to be more aggressive i'm asking marcus all to be more aggressive that's going to limit the times you touch the ball and I still want to want to be able to utilize you, you know, and, and highlight you, but I won't be able to do it in that starting lineup. And I said, you know, and the fact is, why in your 15th, 16th year do you want to wrestle with starting power forwards and centers when I can put you in this second unit and you can now go against second line guys with front line talent? And I said, now I'll make you a promise. Your touches will not change uh, over the course of the time you come out the bench. And so, his usage rate was the same as it was the year before. I made a point to that. Um, he got into a real comfort zone fast. It only worked because he agreed and literally never said a word about it to me the whole year. Like, just did it and did it well. And, you know, I challenged him to be the sixth man of the year and say, you know, how can how can we turn something that looks like maybe a demotion into something that looks like here's a guy that can adapt it and, you know, this is somebody I would want on my team next year in a contract year um, to be able to start them or come off the bench. I said, you're saying a lot about yourself to, to our team and to other teams that, you know, you're adaptable. And so he was fantastic in how he handled it. He helped us win games. I ran right back to starting them when we got down 0-2 to popping them in the final in the, uh, playoffs and, uh, and he understood why, and, uh, you know, that's why I just have so much respect for the guy and uh, really got a great relationship with him to this day. Well, it's a tremendous lesson for all of us as coaches. And, you know, what I love about what you just said is obviously you connected the why for him, but more so, and you can talk about this, is how you approach this type of situation with logic rather than emotion, which is a challenge for all of us as coaches. Yeah, and I think that's where, you know, I've, trust me, I've done it the wrong way. Uh, so have I, coach. Guns <laughs> blazing all emotion. And the whole reason why I had my guns blazing backfired on me. And you learn from that. And, and again, that goes back to that trust thing as well. And I think, you know, you just got to know your guys to a point where you, you got to deal with something that's drastic or something that's going to be, you know, you don't know how it's going to go when you deliver it. Um, I think you just got to take the time to be thoughtful and mindful and 
fearless and and really have your your whys in place, your evidence in place. And it's not always going to go smooth. It's not going to always be well received, but that's where you just got to stick to your guns. And that's where like a guy like Eric Spolster, I, I really admire so much and watching him while I worked with him because he really knew how to stick to his guns and stay within the parameters of this culture he was, he was, you know, fostering. And, you know, he didn't waver on, on particulars and he really stuck to his guns. And that's even with the, our best players. Um, you know, he was flexible on particular things, but it was just some things that were non-negotiables that he wasn't going to bend on. And, um, you know, to do that with a team that was a star studded as that Heat team, uh, it just goes to show you how he, you know, he, you got to have some fortitude uh, to be able to coach in that, in that environment. Take a brief moment to interrupt this podcast to share some information from one of our show supporters. As sports keep coming back, so does your chance to bet on them with our exclusive wagering partner, betonline.ag. Major League Baseball will soon be in full swing, and there are no shortage of ways to get in on the action. BetOnline has all the odds, futures, and props for you to be on. Also tune in as Floyd Money Mayweather Weather joins BetOnline team in a new segment called The Ice is Right, where he talks about his expansive jewelry collection. He'll give you the chance to win some great prizes and bet on the cost of his bling. Visit betonline.ag today to check out all the odds and up-to-date sports news. Don't forget to sign up and take advantage of all the Welcome Back to Sports bonuses. BetOnline, your online wagering experts. Now back to the podcast. Well, and getting into the Miami culture a little bit, you were you were brought up in it. Uh, obviously, you know it extremely well. But what I'm wondering is the challenges of transporting some of those ideas to other organizations. Even though you know some of those things work and they suit you, it, it seems like it's not for everyone. And is that a hard part about knowing that Miami culture? Yeah, and and I think too, even for me, um, I don't think it's healthy to try to just pick it up out of Miami and be able to like sit it somewhere and think it's going to work. That's just, that's not how it is. I don't think any culture really works like that, but I do think there's some fundamentals from it that, that you, that become ingrained in you and it just becomes your DNA. And, you know, I just always felt like this with any coach and coming in and, and, you know, trying to put your stamp on it, you know, just make sure it's genuine. And so, you know, for, for some guys, you know, maybe, the heat way is the way. And, you know, like I say, when their other assistants get their jobs, they're going to be more right to the letter with it. Whereas it may be another coach who takes a chunk of it, but puts his own twist on it. And I think, you know, and I just think personally, you know, if it comes off as genuine and real and the players can see why you, you know, have particular standards and, and guidelines and things you 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 all commit to and abide by for the greater good. Um, as long as they can see that and understand that, I think you get a lot of buy-in. But I just think that ultimately it has to be genuine to you as a coach. Otherwise, uh, it, if you come off as, as, as phony, it'll backfire on you. Yeah, there's no doubt. And obviously this is another thing that I, I've read you say, and that's this, this concept of working within an organization – and having to win the people in your building that you can't win a game without winning the people in your building first. Yeah. Yeah. I thought, I think it's, uh, you know, I think it's really important that when you, when you get a job or you take over somewhere that, you know, don't start playing the games right away. You know, you gotta, you gotta really take the time to know the people who's going to be working in that building. Uh, every single day with your staff and your players and who's doing all of the grunt work that's not being rewarded. That's not glamorous. And, you know, I just really feel like making those people feel like they matter and, and, you know, making them have a, 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 you know, a name and not just somebody that's, that's in the background. I think people really buy into what you're trying to do. And, you know, when you, reflect what you're trying to get done, which my big thing was always, I always wanted to be of service to everybody. 
when you're doing it, then everybody else is going to do it. And it really, um, um, you know, it's fun to see it radiate through the building. And a lot of that radiation happens because you, you respect the people for, for who they are and what they bring to the table. Yeah, tremendous, tremendous insights for all of us. And uh, we're going to jump around a little bit because I'm just excited to talk to you about so many different things. But going back to maybe you as the person, and I've, I've read this or I've, I've heard this from someone that you're a big believer in the growth mindset and the research from Carol Dweck. Can you talk a little bit about that and then how that's impacted your coaching and your approach? Yeah, you know, really Spo turned me on to it. Um you know, I, I learned so much from Spo. It was, it's, I, I can't even, I don't have enough time to talk about it, but, you know, Spo, Spo threw the book at me one day. Uh, and people don't notice, he's, he's, he's a mean guy. He just threw the book at me. So somebody, <laughs> uh, he's like, read this. And so uh, we always try to exchange those type of things and ideas. And he's like, it's, it's great. It's great. He's like, just read it. And so I, I really got into it. And it, I think sometimes certain things that hit Baines with Spo and I, that were just like, yes, like that, that's the best way of, of, you know, phrasing this whole thing. And are you fixed or are you about growth? And we really tried to institute that and practice that uh, within the heat culture. And that's why, that's where I learned that the culture is what it is, but there is room where it allows for this, this adaptability and change uh, to happen within it. And, you know, that's a credit to Pat for, for giving it that flexibility without with knowing that it won't break. And uh, so we, we spawn, I really try to pour that into the culture is, you know, getting everybody to have uh, a growth mindset, get everybody thinking bigger, more, you know, and, and, you know, not being fixed on, well, this is how I've always done it, you know, that was, that was like the thing we always used to tell the coach and staff and the players we don't want to hear them ever say is this is how I've always done it um, because you've already lost if that's it, you know. And so <clears throat> because of him, I really, uh, you know, really put that into my mind. I, I wove that into my, my fabric and, you know, I really try to put that in, in terms of my life in general. Um, and how I live from a day-to-day basis. So, uh, but I owe Spo that. Well, I, I I can vouch for that because a few years ago, Coach Spolstra had me in to speak to the staff about a lot of the evidence-based ideas I share. And again, I was blown away with the open-mindedness from, again, such a successful coach, successful organization, and all the people in the room. And And what always struck me was how good the questions were. And I find that's a reflection of people that really want to have this growth mindset. Is that something that's within your mindset as well, is to be able to ask really good questions? Well, I think it, the questions always start, start off from being thoughtful. I just think you take, take the time. It goes back to what we talked about, reflection, self-reflection. You know, as I, I'm just one of those people, as I take information in, I try to connect it to my own experiences and find where it interlaps, uh, overlaps and interlocks, um, you know, and how, you know, okay, I see, I, can, I see how this can help me or how this can, where this can really make my life better, you know, and things like that. And so when, I, when I'm taking in information, as I'm going through that process, I formulate my questions, you know, out of how to help, how to take what you're giving me and how does that lead me on this path to improve something? And so I think a lot of us from having an open mind and a growth mindset and always looking for ways to improve, uh, we all kind of think from that standpoint and always want to ask, you know, really good questions. And, you know, it's even with my team, like I I put them in a lot of situations where they have to interact with the coaches and interact with each other. You know, I let them run film. I do small groups, platoon stuff where I put, you know, all of the forwards in the room to watch film together like football and I'll let them run the session with the coaches just kind of hanging in the background if they need navigation. And, you know, what it, what it ends up creating uh, is really a really cool thing to see how guys really learn how to communicate with each other. So things like that, you know, where, you know, that's the, that's the kind of stuff that, that you get from being around 
you know, growth mindset type people. Yeah. And I imagine again, like we won't spend too much time on here, but that's a challenge because some players come in with very fixed mindsets, uh, having got that from coaches, from trainers, from, you know, agents, other people. I mean, so part of that is to be able to nurture this growth mindset in them to be able to help them truly approach their potential. Right. Yeah. Uh, just, uh, what my man say on money ball, adapt or die. <laughs> Absolutely. That's, that's, and, and, you know, most most young players, like I said, were stars their whole life. If they got to the NBA, most of these guys were the best player on their team most of their life. And then all of a sudden they get here and it's like, well, it's not working. <laughs> and they're looking to you for the answer. And the bottom line is it takes time and they got to get it takes time for these guys to improve. And, and they got to stay with it. And it's the first time that they're running into real adversity from the standpoint of their game. And so really trying to get them to not be fixed in their what, you know, what is, this is how I've always done it, right? That attitude, uh, you can say, well, you better change up or you won't be doing this for long. <laughs> and most players hear that loud and clear on the NBA level and they start to take it in. But ultimately you win their trust uh, they know you're there trying to give them the, the best opportunity and trying to make them as good as they could possibly be and, you know, make it that, that you're doing it together. Uh, most guys really, really open their mind up to, you know, what you're trying to teach them. So shifting a little bit before we come back to some of the, the culture and mindset type stuff, uh, want to use your expertise, technical, tactical, and talk about something that's obviously prevalent in the game. That's defending the three-point line. What, what are some strategies or some ideas for the coaches that are listening now? Because it's obviously become such an important part. What are some ideas that we should be focusing more on in defending the three-point line? I don't know if you want me answering that. My team stopped <laughs> guarding the three. but uh, um, Well, this is part of self-reflection, right? <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, I think what I've always tried to really stress is, is one, how do you kill the, the easy three? You know, how do you eliminate the, the actual attempts on easy threes? Um, you know, knowing personnel, uh, you know, which guys you really need to run off the line and which guys you need to be there to just challenge. Um, you know, th just really emphasizing those areas. Uh, how you get to it systematically, obviously, you don't want to scramble as much. Um, so switching obviously plays a, a lot into it. If you got the personnel that can – uh, keep the guard in front on the switch or you got a, 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 a guard that can take a big in the post and hold his own without having to bring a double team all the time. That'll, that'll limit the number of open threes people get, um, you know, but then I also ultimately you got to have great effort um, and be committed to making multiple efforts in a possession a lot of times with these well-coached teams and, the, and good ball movement teams with multiple shooters on the floor and, you know, some big time attacker or roll big uh, that you're facing, you know, you got to have a team that's willing to put multiple efforts together in a possession uh, to, to win the possession. And so, uh, you know, I, I think you're asking a great question because obviously the three ball is, is the thing that's, that's killing a lot of people right now. And, uh, you know, but I think the more you, if you can really try to streamline it and simplify it for your team and, and the areas that you're trying to eliminate, you know, are you are you giving up corner threes before slot threes? Most teams won't. Most teams want to kill the corner because it's the, it's the higher percentage shot uh, and really drilling those habits into your guys to be able to think that on the fly in the middle of a game that they see a guy in the slot and they stun at him and stay with the corner guy. Um, and then still being able to, to adjust on the fly, knowing that the guy in the slide is a big time shooter and the guy in the corner isn't and saying, OK, this time I'm going to rotate. Um, you know, when you get when you really get developed and can evolve to that, that's when your, your team is really going to be good. But um, ultimately, I think getting, you know, get three or four real important things to you and hammer them home. Absolutely. That's great stuff. Great, great guidance to be able to help move forward. And I, as you're talking, I just, again, reflecting back maybe on your time with the heat, uh, what role did you find yourself most playing during the championship run? Like, cause we can talk about a lot of different roles for assistance, but what, what was the most 
effective role or what did you find yourself doing the most for that team to help them? No, that's a hard question to answer because the cool part about our staff is we just, no one was like necessarily lodged into a role. Like, you know, if Spo asks you a question, he wants to answer. <laughs> he didn't care if he was the video guy or me or Ron Rothstein or whoever. But I mean, the things I tried to do and tried to feel, you know, obviously was I tried to, um, you know, help him with game planning as much as possible um, and strategy. Um, you know, I, I always tried to look at his job from from twenty five thousand feet and say, okay. What what are the what are the possible landmines that's coming his way that when you know maybe he's not gonna see because he's in the storm, uh, and try to you know make sure that he doesn't run into any any tough situations that way. Um, you know, obviously, developing players uh, was everybody's job. You know, we just felt like that that was the role of of all uh, all of the coaches. So, um, you know, we spent a lot of time with that. I tried to put out smoke before there was ever fire, you know, so that if it was something he didn't need to deal with, I was always there to take care of that kind of stuff. You know, if a player wanted to vent or I had the player was, you know, not seeing things, you know, from a reality, a place of reality, I would try to step in and, and talk to that player and get them back to the right mind frame before it ever gets to him, you know, because he's got enough on his plate. And so, and then obviously I, I would try to, you know, do my part in communicating and making sure that, you know, if it was something that he didn't have time to meet with the staff on, and we all did this, but we would always echo information around to each other and make sure that everybody knew where his head was at and what he was thinking, you know, and, and keeping everybody organizing on the right track. Take a brief moment to interrupt this podcast to share some information from one of our show supporters. As sports keep coming back, so does your chance to bet on them with our exclusive wagering partner, betonline.ag. Major League Baseball will soon be in full swing, and there are no shortage of ways to get in on the action. BetOnline has all the odds, futures, and props for you to be on. Also tune in as Floyd Money Mayweather Weather joins BetOnline team in a new segment called the ice is right where he talks about his expansive jewelry collection he'll give you the chance to win some great prizes and bet on the cost of his bling visit betonline.ag today to check out all the odds and up-to-date sports news don't forget to sign up and take advantage of all the welcome back to sports bonuses bet online your online wagering experts hey coaches brief interruption from our podcast to hear from manscape.com 2020 has been the year of things happening that are completely out of your control, but there is one thing that you can control, and that's shaving your bush. You may be surprised how many coaches have already DM'd me about this special offer. I wasn't, because I'm a user, and Manscaped.com is definitely worth it. Our sponsors at Manscaped are here to remind you to do so. The Manscaped Lawnmower 3.0 is a premium electric trimmer that's designed to give you a confidence boost through body image. Their ceramic blade and skin-safe technology are designed to reduce nicks and tugs on your fellows down low. The Lawnmower 3.0 is also waterproof and comes with an LED light so you can manscape in the shower, in the dark, or in a dark shower, whatever floats your boat. Go to manscaped.com and check out some of these life-changing products. In fact, listeners of this show will get 20% off plus free shipping with the code armchair at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code armchair. It's time to grab 2020 by the horns by shaving that front trunk. Now back to the podcast. Now, I'm curious, you said echo, which is obviously so important. Is that something that when you went into your head coaching jobs, is that something that you felt you had to teach some assistants that the value of that, or is that something that's just, you assume they have this knowledge? No, nah, you got to try to teach it. And it's it's uncomfortable sometimes because, you know, it just depends on how you communicate. Some people want to sit down in group meetings all the time. Some people want to have face-to-face, you know, some people can just go and not do any of it. And so I just felt like, the, you know, for me, it was always a good balance of, you know, 
group meetings, sometimes face-to-face with individual assistants, or if I just wanted them to know something and have an emphasis on something is just echoing through the building. Hey, let's make sure today everybody is, is emphasizing blocking out. Echo that to the coaching staff and boom, you know, it, immediately everybody got the message and knew that's something we was going to be focusing on that day was, you know, blockouts or something like that. So I, I found, I, I just found for my comfort zone, I like having a balance of, of those interactions, um, whether it's group, small group, or, you know, down, you know, sending information down the line. Very cool. Uh, I, more back to some of the offensive and defensive concepts maybe that you used. Did you, did you find there's consistency from your two head coaching jobs or did you have to change some of your absolutes because of the personnel? Cause they were very different teams, obviously. Yeah. I think you just evolve as you go through it and you look at your personnel and you try to weigh what you have versus what you know and what you, what you, you know, what you've always done. And I think that you have to be realistic and look at your teams and say, okay, well, this team, uh, you know, probably can't do the same things as, as a team like this. You know, my, maybe my young guys can't handle what Marcus Saul can handle. You know, Marcus Saul is a wizard defensively. He can see everything you're trying to do. He can take away your second option. Like, he, you know what I mean? Like, he's ahead of the game where here's these young guys seeing a situation for the first time, you know, can I ask them to do the things that Marcus Hall and Mike Conley were doing? And it's probably not fair of that to ask them of that. We try to put them in more situations where they can just fly around and not have to overthink it. Um, you know, and so you evolve with your team and you try to be, like I said, open-minded uh, to, to what makes, uh, you know, what, what makes a player a better player for you. And so, um, but I definitely changed over the course of time from one place to the next. Another thing that comes through is obviously you've coached so many elite players and some all-time greats. And I find that for a lot of newer young coaches, coaching the best players is a real challenge. And not just in terms of their confidence to coach them, but sometimes they feel like they don't need the coaching and the other players need more of it. But that's a mistake, isn't it? The best players really do crave coaching. They love culture. They just you can't you can't bullshit them. That's all. At the end of the day, you can't bring them information that's not going to uh, challenge them and put them at a higher level. And they see through it, and they they they'll call you out on it. And so, you know, and and I've said this before: is when you deal with guys like Ray Allen or. Dwayne or any of these guys, you you have to be prepared to learn more than you teach because you're dealing with an expert when you're talking about a great player. He is an expert at his craft. And am I more of an expert at teaching it than is he is at doing it, you know? And so you have to find that balance of like, be willing to listen and watch and study. So now when you do decide you're going to coach them on something, it's, it's tangible, it's meaningful, it's thoughtful. Um, you know, you've really evaluated and watched the film and watched his body movement, his body mechanics, and, you know, you've shown him the edits and now he sees it and he understands what's going on and why you're doing what you're doing. Um, but you got to have a patience to that. You know, it's not just about jumping on the floor and, oh, I'm going to tell them this and I'm going to coach this. And nah, that's not really how it works out. It's much more of, a, you know, again, building a trust. And, you know, once you do have that trust, then there is more back and forth um, because they know that you're going to challenge them. But I think early on, you got to spend time really listening and watching and really trying to. Uh, evaluate and strategize on how you can make this already great player even better. And, uh, you know, because there's not a whole lot of things you're going to be able to look at at that guy and say, oh, I can make him better at this because he's already got that on on the checked off on the box. 
<laughs> on the board. And so, uh, so you really got to take the time to figure out what you can add to that person's game, um, you know, especially as they age. I'm not sure if you can think of a specific example, or you, certainly this can be a general answer, but you, you mentioned the expertise of a player like a Dwayne Wade or something like that. So do you, do you have an example of something that you learned from working with a Dwayne Wade that then you could apply to other players, some type of skill, sometimes a perceptual ability, maybe some type of approach, things like that, that you took away from an expert and could apply to others. Gosh, that's a, that's a great question. You're kind of putting me on the spot. But, uh, you know, I think with him. And it can be any player coach. Don't, don't it's just Dwayne as an example. Well, the thing I noticed with Dwayne and LeBron, and I, I don't know how you get this or you, you know, maybe you emphasize it to your players at a young age, uh, you know, your kids at a young age. But the one thing I noticed about them and, and what would, to me, what separates a great player from a good player. Uh, was their ability to, we would work on something that morning at shoot around. And not only would they do it in the game, but they would do it well that night. And they would have only tried it, you know, so many reps during shoot around. And that's when I realized there's a difference. And Spo used to say this too about Dwayne. It's like, with him, you don't have to do you know, 20,000 reps or something for him to get it. For whatever reason, when he sees it, it goes into the system, his body can just do it. And you you just tightening them up along the edges uh, as he's doing it. And and he and LeBron both, I remember we worked on a, with LeBron, we were talking about, we kept talking about it, but we did, we hadn't gotten to it. And he was like, man, let's work on our, our running hook. He's like, he's like, I think I can have a great running hook. I'm like, yeah, I do too. And so at day of shoot around, you know, we was working on it. And even Coach Riles, I remember Coach Riles coming onto the court and talking about it because he obviously Coach Riles coached Kareem and Magic, two of the best, you know, sky hook, baby hook shooters of all time. And so Riles came out and was showing him how to, where to put his knee and all of that kind of stuff. And he must have did, I don't know. 15 to 20 reps of it uh, that day. And then that night, I think he shot three and made two <laughs> in, the game, in the game. And so it's just like these guys, they just, they got this thing. They just can, they can, all they have to do is simulate it a few times, but they can, they can apply it immediately. Uh, Chris Bosch had a lot of that in them too. Um, you know, from that standpoint, if you showed them something earlier that day or a couple of days before, you know, he was able to apply it in a game like right away. And I just, in my whole career, that's been the biggest difference um, that I've seen uh, overall with, between great and, and good and good to eh, players. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I love you sharing that. Like that's such a, such a deep understanding of the process of expertise and to be able to get players there, we need to understand it. And we need to understand what makes them experts beyond just, again, biomechanical skill. And that's, that's, that's really cool to hear that. So um, I guess I mean, you alluded to this a little bit with some of that and some of these other things, but the different challenges or maybe the things that we don't think about as much when it comes to coaching a veteran team versus a young team, which you've done parts of both. Mm-hmm. Um. I would say, you know, there's a lot of differences, obviously. Uh, you, you know, your veterans get it. They're going to – they understand how to prepare for the most part. Uh, if you tell them what to expect, uh, they usually can, can answer the bell uh, to, for the most part and, and execute what you're trying to get done because they've been around it now and they're not – dealing with all of the, the, the different ups and downs that come with learning the NBA as a young player. Um, and so you could throw more at them. You could try more things with them uh, because they pick up stuff so much faster. Um, you know, you also, as a uh, you, you have to respect their body of work. I think that's really important when you're coaching a veteran and respect his, 
his knowledge and understanding of the game. And, and I even believe giving him a voice to, you know, obviously to speak up and practice like a coach has, has always been a really important thing for me with the veteran players. You know, when they see something or they, they got an idea or, you know, whatever it may be that they have that platform to, to, to stop the practice and speak up on it. Um, you know, with young guys, I think, you know, finding that balance every day of, of teaching them uh, without overloading them, uh, but at the same time getting the right amount of reps of, of competition in and doing it at a competitive level. And, and that's the hard part because when you're teaching something, you don't necessarily want to be going full board competitive because usually a guy is going to resort back to his old habit really quickly. So you try to you want to do enough of the teaching and get enough of the habit so that when you do start the actual competition and the hitting, that is now something that he uses uh, as a weapon instead of resorting back to old habit. And so, um, you know, you, you, that's that difficult line with young guys that you deal with. When you got a lot of them, you're always trying to walk that line of, of giving them, give them a, the right amount of coaching and where. Uh, so both, you know, unique situations. And I literally had the bookends of them. I had a much older team. Vince Carter was on that team in Memphis. Um, you know, that was a veteran team, Tony Allen. And so that that experience was definitely like the the – other end compared to my young guys in New York who, you know, all of them were kids. It was a stretch where that team was the youngest team in the history of the league, if I'm not mistaken. So, you know, it was really, a, a, you know, you teaching and playing and competing on the fly, trying to get them to, to understand, you know, how to win in the league while they're losing. And that's tough. And, but, but ultimately they, they get it. Uh, and I even think those young guys there will get it and, and going to keep getting better. So you've talked about the impact, obviously, of Eric Spolstra and you guys coming up together, so to speak, through the video room, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm curious, and it's kind of like a mythological creature for a lot of us that don't know much. But can you talk about the impact of Pat Riley? Oh, man, this is presence is... Uh... You know, <laughs> it's got to be intense. <laughs> it is, and it's. Uh, but I always tell, I say this a lot about him. You know, when he loves you, you know it. Like it's no, it's no. He don't mess around with the gray area. You know, you either with him, and he he's got your back, and he's in the trench with you, or you're over there. And you know, to be in his trench is a great thing. And like, I think I said this to someone else was. Um, you know, I would try to spend time with him almost every day. As soon as practice was over, you know, I would go over and see him and whoever was at practice that day. And, you know, we would talk about it'd be 20, 30 minutes of different things. And I just, I would just soak it all up. I would try to take in every nugget uh, I could possibly get and draw up a play. You know, because he and he understood it. He was like, man, Spoh's got enough on his plate. He was like, show him this play later. And he'd draw up a play, and I'd take the play later on and show it to Spoh. Say, hey, Riles wanted me to show you this. But he knew at that time Spoh was already at his, you know, full. So he wouldn't he wouldn't go directly up to Spoh, ah, yeah, check out this play. And so I got to spend that kind of time with him, you know, from that standpoint. And he is just uh, – He's a brilliant man from the standpoint of uh, understanding people and strategy. And, you know, he's a big thinker. He's, he, he, he dreams big. He, he's not afraid to, to swing for the fence. Um, he's one of the great just tacticians and motivators that the game has ever seen. Um, I think we can all attest to that and uh, what, what we know about him. Uh, you know, and so, you know, and the thing about it is you, he's genuine. It's, it's not an act. It's not, you know, he, he's not trying to please people. It's, it's, it's a genuine guy. He's a, I want to stand on it, a man's man. <laughs> yeah. You know, he's just one of those guys that just, you know, when he, when he says he's about something, he's about it. And so, you know, when you when you're working, 
you know, under that kind of umbrella uh, where that's the expectation, you know, it only does, the only thing it can do is make you better. And so, you know, I know a lot of, a lot of Pat rubbed off on Spo, a lot of Stan Van Gundy rubbed off on Spo, Ron Rothstein, uh, Bob McAdoo, you know, Keith Askins, you know, Spoke got a little bit of all of those guys. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> with Pat and Stan probably being, you know, the main guys, but you know, that's why you see how good Eric, Eric Spolster is as a coach now. It's not a, it's not a coincidence. <laughs> no question. <laughs> he is. He was directly in contact with with great coaches uh, who who really poured themselves into him. So. I cannot let you go, obviously, without getting into interview advice. Um, I, I, Coach Spolsters told a story about how you guys game planned in a, in a war room for some of the interviews you've gone through. And it sounded amazing. What a process to go through. But, you know, honestly, you prepare for interviews your whole coaching career. But you've had a lot of experience interviewing. Can you give us some, ex- some experiential advice that coaches could apply in the interview process? Yeah, you know, and the first one is just you got to be genuine. Be be who you are. You know, you're not anybody else. Be yourself. Uh, that has to be the first thing they feel is, is, in, is that you are who you say you are. Um, and, you know, that you, 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 you have a standard about you. And, you know, these are things they can know about you before you walk in the room. And... Um, I would just say as from a process standpoint is, you know, really take the time to get to know the team you're interviewing for. Obviously, I know it sounds obvious, but uh, you should know that team inside now. Statistically, you should know the players that's returning, um, you know, and their situations. Um, I would say, you know, be be able to to take uh, their current roster and uh, circumstances and and morph that with your belief system and philosophy and show where you, where you guys have common ground and how you can utilize uh, what's already in place. I think being able to point that out to the people that's hiring is a, you know, really important thing. And I would say cover all your bases too, like cover, you know, from the standpoint of when I say bases, I, I, the teaching utensils. So I would, I would have my film ready uh, to show philosophically what I believe in offensively and defensively. Um, I would have the numbers, uh, analytics, some kind of picture I can paint with analytics um, to show them what I want to want to do offensively and defensively. Um, You know, I would just try to cover all of those bases uh, and all of the utensils that coaches use, you know, try to paint your portrait of your team, you know, and, and your vision in conjunction with, with the roster and the players that they have. That's great advice. And, uh, you know, that, that, that process that you talked about, what, what I'm curious about, so, so much of it, like, I think you said something like you had five interviews in one in 11 days once. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that, which is, which is mind boggling to think, but then I'm curious again, a lot of your skills transfer from one interview to the next, just what you've got to get is more specific about each team and each organization as much as possible. Yeah. And that's the thing. That's why I said that the work is really in what you do before all of it. And, and, you know, my agent and I at the time knew that it was going to be a lot of jobs open and to find the job that, that we thought was best. I might have to do a lot of interviews because I, I wasn't, I had no, you know, idea of one, it was just flattering that people wanted to interview me, but I didn't have any idea of what I wanted, if I could pick, you know, until I got closer to the end and making a decision. But I went to, I really dove into the teams that had the job openings and I just spent time researching them and, and learning about them and watching film on them and, you know, reading all of the sheets that I could read uh, you know, that gave me analytical pictures of them. And uh, so by the time it was time to like, you know, switch from one team to the next, you know, cause it really happened fast. It was like 10, 11 days, you know, where we did these interviews and um, 
to be able to switch, hit that switch and go from Phoenix to New York, New York to Charlotte, you know, Charlotte to Atlanta, whatever it was, the order, well, you know, Atlanta to Orlando, it was like, you know, it was more comfortable for me because I had really prepared and, and really studied their rosters um, and knew their roster to a T and I knew what I wanted to do to a, you know, as well as I thought I could know it. And so to be able to talk about that with the decision makers, um, you know, from the standpoint of, of how the two merge, um, you know, it wasn't, it was just exhausting. It wasn't as much hard as it was exhausting just from the amount of flying and running around and a lot of talking, you know, for hours on end. And so, uh, but the prep, the pre-prep is everything. You got to get you, you know, know, know the people that you're talking about you know, and really understand yourself and what you're trying to do and, and be able to see the common ground. Great insights. Great insights. Coach Fisdell, I cannot thank you enough for uh, your, your honest, open, genuine sharing and uh, just uh, being able to listen to so many of the things that you said will have an impact on uh, so many of us as coaches. So thank you for sharing the game. No, thanks for having me. This is good stuff. That's what, if you're keeping it, I don't know what you're keeping it for because somebody else is, is sharing and other people are getting better. So uh, I think it's a criti critically important thing that we continue to try to help each other as coaches get better. Well, I, lo I love that sentiment and uh, appreciate it very much. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and to give the Basketball Podcast and this week's guest a shout out on social media to show your support for us sharing the game. And to stay up to date on all things basketball immersion, subscribe to our newsletter at basketballimmersion.com newsletter.